This, this is the second, second Story Podcast. I love my bicycle. The click of the chain, the wind whipping in my face as I pedal along the lakefront path. I feel five years old all over again. For some, biking is just a way to get around. But for a few, for the cool kids, biking is a way of life. This week on the Second Story Podcast, company member Kim Morris shows the camaraderie and the family that this way of life brings, bonding over pedal clips and bottles of PBR. Kim Morris has been with Second Story for eight years. She has served as the director of story development and has acted as an integral cog in this crazy machine. This story, titled Revenge Fantasies, was performed in March of 2013 at Webster's Wine Bar. The theme of the evening was Tough Guys Talk Tough, stories of image and action. And now, Second Story is proud to present Kim Morris. It's a Tuesday, 1999. We are bike messengers, and this is what we're doing. Sitting at the center table in Rossi's, like kings, bags stuffed against the wall, fingers caked in bike grease, hair matted to our heads, despite the fact that we each refused to wear helmets. Body odor and weed emanating off of us the way pollen saturates summer days. Jeff is standing next to his stool, pointing ahead of him, lost in the zone that is his story. Congress, at state, as you know, multiple lanes, and I'm tracking it, right, from a block south, and I know I got this, fuck the red, and I pounce on it, the whole motherfucking intersection, and like that, I'm on the other side. No horns honking, no assholes yelling, just rolling up state, like a ghost, babies, smooth like a ghost. <laughs> Jeff rides a baby blue Cannondale frame with all the markings buffed out. Arrow bars, no tape, it's a hot bike. Mike taps his fingers on his pint, PBR, which he says he drinks for the taste. <laughs> he has shitty taste. <laughs> he goes, I took the Kennedy from Washington to Ohio. It's quicker. The west side of the loop sucks. It's easier to deal with the glass on the shoulder of the highway than the assholes who can't figure out how to use their damn turn signals on Jefferson. Mike rides a green Bianchi with white bar tape. That suspiciously, is never dirty. <laughs> it's a hot bike. Mike and Jeff gulp from their pints. They both look at me. Well, I say, she nailed me from behind. I was waiting on the yellow line to make a, the left into the Freedom Center, and the next thing I know, I'm getting pushed along the pavement like I'm snow getting plowed. She took responsibility, which is a good thing, because she rippled my frame. I have a new-ish bike now. Red frame of unknown origin, arrow bars with black and white tape, campy components. It's a super hot bike. <laughs> a good thing you were wearing your helmet, Jeff says, and we all laugh. I don't think any of us own helmets. Shit, Mike says suddenly, and he walks over to the jukebox, stuffs dollars into it, and out screams the stones. Mike falls apart if he doesn't hear the Rolling Stones regularly. I think it's a glandular problem. <laughs> Our radios crackle. We each have our own, bound with tubes to the straps on our bags. I reach over and turn each radio off. 
Dave is no doubt yelling into the dispatch mic in the office, screaming, where are we? But he knows. It's 5 o'clock on a Tuesday. We have worked our asses off this week. I believe we deserve to be sitting in a bar getting shit-faced because how else will we persevere through the upcoming weekend if we don't do a practice run now? <laughs> yeah, this is an argument I presented many Tuesdays ago to Jeff and Mike and Tommy, and they all agreed wholeheartedly because they are bastions of mental health. <laughs> so now we have a routine. In the door walks Tommy, covered in black soot and sweetness. His sweetness is confusing in a bike messenger world that prizes sarcasm and aloofness, but it is also why we love him so much. The screen door slams behind him, and he announces to the bar, which is me and Mike and Jeff, <laughs> the weekend begins now, motherfuckers! And he smiles his movie star smile and catches my eye and says, and motherfuckerettes! <laughs> Mike says, your weekend starts after you take care of my early route tomorrow morning, asshat. And Tommy points at him, clucks his tongue, says, righto. And then he produces a 20 from his pocket. But now we party, because I just found this on the sidewalk. And in seconds, we're drinking imported beers and fighting over bike components and music. It's 2 PM the next day. I'm standing on the Michigan Avenue bridge, staring at the river. The news bounces around the air like a pinball. Did you hear? Did you hear? Did you hear? This is the news. Tommy, blown stop sign, Ford F-150, middle finger, bike mangled, neck snapped. No more Tommy. At his memorial service that weekend, we sit in the last pew of the church. Our shoulders are slumped. Our fingertips are numb. The only sounds we make, occasional catching a breath. We are too shattered to cry. Mike says, I shut up. And it bounces around us like planets orbiting the sun until it becomes a part of all of us. I shut up. I shut up. I shut up. On Monday, I'm walking into Rosenbluth Travel. Their office is on the 23rd floor of the NBC building. The pickup is in the back of the office, in their printer room, behind the rows of travel agents tethered to open-air cubicles by phone cords and job security. They all wave or smile at me as I walk in. I see them every day. This is my regular route. But today, I don't wave or smile. I can only hear the booming screech of car brakes. I heard it when I was outside, somewhere on Michigan. Couldn't see the car it came from. Couldn't figure out the intersection it was at. The sound is slamming through my bones now. It followed me as I locked up outside, as I walked through the lobby, as I inched upwards in the elevator. When I get to the printer room, I call Dave. You out, he says. Call the bikers, I tell him. No, call me clean, south. Dave, what? Call the bikers. Make sure they're out there. 31, no, call me clean. The board slammed. I yell into the phone. Dave, God damn it! call the fucking bikers. Make sure they're all right. The travel agents are staring at me. Kim, Dave says. He never calls me by name, only by number. My armpits are dripping sweat. Everyone's all right. And now I'm screaming, fuck you, Dave, call him. I see the office manager come out of her office. She's walking over here. I hear the annoying hold music on the phone. I turn up my radio. 
I hear Dave call each biker by number, 26, 32, 36. The cube dwellers turn and watch the office manager as she makes her way over to me. I hold my breath, wait to hear Jeff and Mike. When Dave calls their numbers, there's a long pause for each of them and I panic. Imagine bikes mangled under a semi, necks snapped underneath a Lexus. I try to breathe, but I can't. My heart is beating too loud. The office manager is standing in the doorway of the printer room looking at me. I hear Jeff's voice on the radio. Slow, drunk. Quit fucking calling me, Dave. I'll call you clean, asshole. And then Mike's voice, rushed and bouncing. He must be walking through a building. What? He snaps. <laughs> They're alive. I turn down my radio. The office manager's forehead is creased. Is everything okay, she asks. I'm suddenly aware of how clean this office is. The surfaces are wiped down. The paper is stacked neatly. The office supplies are tucked like bunnies into black plastic trays. I have bike grease all over my t-shirt, dirt under my nails. I can feel my face is flushed, which means it's a crimson red. I grab the pick, sign the log, try to smile at the office manager as I pass her, but I can't speak. My hands are shaking. I can't make them stop. This is what Jeff and Mike look like on Wednesday morning at Rossi's, a week after our friend is murdered. Jeff's hands are clutched. His cuticles are pulled apart and have left thin strands of red down his fingers. His eyes are half closed. The lines around his mouth are set deep. He has been grimacing every second for the past week. He has been solidly drunk for the past week. He holds the whiskey in front of him like it's a life preserver. Mike's face is pale and stoic. He keeps his fingers crossed in front of him. He can't make eye contact with us. He speaks only one word at a time, if that, and we need to lean in to hear it if, when he does. He has retreated behind a very thick wall, and I wonder if we'll ever see him again. I am caressing the knuckles on my right hand. After I left Rosenbluth on Monday, I got into a fight with a brick wall. It won. There is a pint of vodka in the middle of the table. Jeff goes, we got to go to 26 in California. Get him. That is brilliant. He says, we could say we're visitors. We could pay someone, I interrupt. We could get in, take a look at his fucking face, pay someone to shove a bat so far up his ass it comes out of his mouth. What we need is a vat of steaming hot oil. Shove his face in it. Hold it there until his legs stop kicking. Fuck that, I say. Let's pay off the guards. Tie him down and peel his skin off and then light him on fire. In front of his family, Jeff says. His hands are shaking. So are mine. Mike goes, no. And we both look at him. And then we look back at each other. We don't have to light him on fire, Jeff says, <laughs> raising an eyebrow at me. <sighs> I acquiesce. Fine, but we still peel his skin off. Jeff nods. Mike is looking deep into his crossed fingers. They won't let us in. We're the victim's family. They won't let us see him. Well, we just need a good story to get us in, Jeff says. Kim can make it up. Yes. No, Mike says. And why is that, your highness? I can see Jeff's jaw clench. I can feel the rage oozing out of his pores. I went there on Monday, Mike tells us. They wouldn't let me in. I look at Jeff 
at Mike, you went there without us? Mike looks at me, at Jeff, at the pint of vodka between us. I wanted to see his face. I dream about nailing his eyelids open, forcing him to stare at me while I shake eye drops of acid in his eyeballs. I imagine telling him about Tommy's birthday last year while I do it. <laughs> we had a barbecue in Tommy's backyard, made s'mores, sang karaoke, whistled Mary had a little lamb through blades of grass. Mike says, they ran a check on me. They wouldn't let me in. I slam my fists on the table. I pound them over and over. Are you kidding me? Are you motherfucking kidding me? They gave him involuntary, involuntary. He chased Tommy down the street. He ran him over, and then he put his truck in reverse and ran him over again. That is not involuntary. That is making a choice to murder another person. I keep slamming the table. Mike and Jeff, watch me. When the murderer pulled in an alley to check his truck after he ran over Tommy twice, he realized his front license plate was missing. They found the plate under Tommy's body. They gave the murderer a lighter sentence because he turned himself in. He will be in jail for less time than it will take us to pick up the pieces of the humans we used to be. I stopped pounding the table. Mike cracks his knuckles. Jeff grabs a pint of vodka and downs it. Bruises start crawling across my hands. We leave Rossi's, head home. We're rolling slowly west down Hubbard, spread out across the lane, warehouses and lofts and breakfast joints watching our pathetic parade. We're about a block east of Ashland when I see Jeff on my left wobble a bit and then swing out over the yellow center line. Suddenly, a horn breaks out behind us, loud and cruel, and a cabbie is on our left, in the oncoming lane, inches from Jeff, screaming, watch where you're going, asshole. He floors it, passes us, jerks his car to the right, fills up the space right in front of us, and then he slams on his brakes. Jeff recovers nicely and cruises around the driver's side, spits in the window, and rolls up to the stop sign at Ashland. Mike passes to the right of the cabbie, pounds on the roof like he's hoping it'll collapse, and he catches up to Jeff. I roll up to the cabbie's window and stop. He looks at me. You shouldn't do that, I tell him. He wipes his mouth, says, oh yeah? Why is that? He has a dirty face and exceptionally white teeth. I check the back seat. No fair. When I look back at the cabbie, I see a bike mangled, a neck snapped. I see all of my friends, lifeless and scattered in pieces on a potholed street. I pull my lock out of my bag and I smash it across the cabbie's face. I stand there, ready to fight, praying for images of dead friends to fade. And then I hear Mike's voice from far away, Kim, and the world comes back into focus. Blood is spurting out of the cabbie's forehead. He's looking disbelievingly at the puddle forming in his hands. I roll up to Jeff and Mike at the stop sign. We catch a gap in traffic on Ashland and we snake slowly across, push west. We are confused. We are desperate. We are broken.
That was Kim Morris. This story was curated by Andrew Riley, with performance direction from Dorothy Milne and a sound design from Nick Kawahara. At the end of our last Second Story season, Kim Morris announced that after eight years and countless performances, she'll be leaving the Second Story Company. We wanted to take a quick look back at some of our favorite Kim Morris moments. Here we go. Corporate diva by day and a closet freak by night. She's about to kick your ass. Please welcome. So, ladies and gentlemen. The lovely, lovely. Kim Morris. Kim Morris. Kim Morris. Kim Morris. Kim Morris. Kim Morris. Her name is Kim Morris, and she is right over there. Yeah, the fantasy me was breaking every rule in the company dress code, and she didn't care. I'm not going to lie to you. Running a genius band is exhausting. But then I'd get to my cubicle. I was wearing a button-up shirt with pit stains. And a gray cardigan with missing buttons. This wasn't something I could fix. So my bangs were standing steady at about three inches tall. I chose not to notice it. If Jokeless Julie was in a band, she'd be the half-talented backup singer to a frighteningly skinny female folk singer. In the bathroom, in the big stall. Okay, I promise you, I will re-input my time. And we gradually realized that neither one of us liked each other. I promise you, I will talk to my supervisor. We were called full-on world domination. I promise you, I will never laugh again, ever. If Susan was in a band, she'd be the xylophone player for a Yanni tribute band. I said to the staircase, what the fuck am I doing? The tall dude said, um, waiting for beer. <laughs> My supervisor, who could easily be a poster boy for a Barry Manilow cover band. I had no idea what he was talking about, but I'm a big fan of repetition. <laughs> Us riding through that was kind of like dancing down the middle of the Soul Train line, except there was no music, and we were on bikes and Don Cornelius was nowhere to be found. And I fade into the crowd on the sidelines. Kim, from all of us at Second Story, thank you so much for everything. We'll really miss you. Second Story is more than just a podcast. It's an immersive story power experience. Join us at our next live show in Chicago at Webster's Wine Bar in Lincoln Park on September 8th and 9th. For tickets or for more information about Second Story, visit our website at secondstory.com. That's 2ndstory.com. If you enjoy this Second Story podcast, we hope you'll take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes. You can always reach me for comment at ozzy at secondstory.com. Second Story podcasts are brought to you by the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, the City Arts Grants, the Arts Works Fund, and the Chicago Community Foundation. This podcast was produced by Eric Hazen. I'm Ozzie Totten, and this is Second Story.